This is The Saucer Life, a podcast in which we examine concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking, no idea how this is going to go. This is the strange case of Carlos Allende, or Carlos Allende, or you can call it the strange case of Carl Allen. I don't care. I really don't. I'm done with him. Um, (laughs) So this is going to be a... I don't want to say a different sort of episode. I don't want to say a weird episode, but as I was putting it together, one of the things that really came across to me is that I had intended this to be part of the Morris K. Jessup episode. So it's every time I say this is going to be a shorter episode than I expect it to be, it ends up being like an hour and 20 minutes long. So I have, I have no expectations of what the length is of this, but I will say this, there's going to be more documents and snippets than maybe not than usual, but the proportion might be a little off because what's in some of the documentation is just so weird and strange and contradictory and confusing that it's hard to summarize some things and you just need to to hear them for yourself. I, I don't intend for this to be an audio book or a compilation of primary sources um, more than it should be, but this is just the way it's turning out, and it's such a convoluted story. And um, I'm not saying I regret going down the Morris K. Jessup Philadelphia experiment, eventually Montauk thing, but sometimes I wonder if a three to four part saga that involves me reading 15 to 20 books was the best thing for my um, my personal well-being you can be the judge of how well we pull this off here at the saucer life today let's go ahead and get started all right so i feel i should provide some kind of last time on the saucer life But it's not going to be super extensive. So if you did not listen to our last, I almost never say this, but if you did not listen to our episode on Morris K. Jessup last time, hit pause, go back and listen to that, then start back up here. But the gist of it is, sciencey guy, astronomer guy, Morris K. Jessup, wrote some UFO books back in the 1950s. One of them got the response of a man calling himself Carl M. Allen or Carlos Allende. Carlos Allende also did some annotations, extensive annotations from people who seemed to be aliens in a copy of one of his books, The Case for the UFO, and sent this to the Office of Naval Office of Naval Research, rather, not Office of Naval Intelligence. The Office of Naval Research talked to Jessup about it, and had some facsimile copies of the annotated book printed up by government contractor, the Vero Corporation. Jessup commits suicide. Everything becomes very mysterious. Carlos Allende drops off the map. 
And here's where we're picking up the story with the question of Carlos Allende, Carl Allen, what the heck is going on here? So that's where we are. I compressed it quite a bit. Like I said, listen to that Morris K. Jessup episode if you want the full strength of what we're getting going into this. If you don't want to do that, that's fine. But I take no responsibility for what you might or might not already know as we get into this material. And one more caveat. There are elements of this that I could go into far more detail on, and I am just not going to, because this is not an encyclopedic look at every aspect of everything about the Philadelphia experiment. This is, or this has become, in the course of working on it, an exploration of the people who brought it to you, so, or were the source of it in some way. So, yes, you are going to listen, and if you have been looking at this extensively and on your own time or in your own life, you're going to say, but what about this? But what about that? What about pages 39 through 47 of this book? Yeah, I probably read it. I'm probably aware of it. Had to make choices. You have to make choices on things like this unless you want them to be seven hours long and consume your entire life. And some podcasts have time for that. The saucer life does not. The saucer life moves fast. The saucer life is quick. The saucer life is going to give you enough to get started to continue to learn on your own. So here we go, picking up the story in the late 1960s. So by the late 1960s, Jessup had been gone for almost 10 years. Carlos Allende was really nowhere to be found. Gray Barker had published his book, The Strange Case of Morris K. Jessup, and was talking about the letters that had been received by Jessup from Allende and the annotations in the Vero edition and was getting ready to put together his own facsimile of the facsimile of the Vero edition. The letters themselves had been published not only by Barker, but earlier by Riley Crabb of the Borderland Science Research Associates. This stuff was out there floating around, but it was hard to get a hold of. It wasn't widely known in most of the UFO field, despite what you may hear later. So in 1968, I want to say, Brad Steiger, who we're going to be hearing from a lot more in this saga, especially next time, published Allende's letters, um, sort of expanding on a magazine article he'd written about the Allende letters called New UFO Breakthrough, Allende Letters, an exclusive report on the mysterious correspondence that triggered a special naval research study. Now, we can sort of quibble with the accuracy and, and sort of outrageously, good golly, special naval research study nature of this, but even in the late 60s, Steiger was a name. He had readers. This book got out to a lot of people and was probably, I would say, one of the things that popularized this whole story to a wider UFO audience that wasn't buying books from Gray Barker. And let's be clear, that is a lot of UFO people who aren't buying books from Gray Barker. So this comes out in the late 60s and out of the woodwork, a whole lot of people claiming to be Allende, write letters to Brad Steiger, um, basically saying things and, and claiming to be part of the Philadelphia experiment complex of events. Now, the way this narrative goes, oh, 
I should say something. Why am I not sharing anything from Brad Steiger's book, New UFO Breakthrough, Allende Letters, etc., etc.? Because it is currently several hours away from me as I'm recording this in a U.S. post office sorting facility in, I think, Elk Grove, Illinois. I was checking it obsessively yesterday, wondering if I would have it in my hands in time to record this episode. And I mentioned something on Twitter and a friend of the show, John E.L. Tenney responded that it's being held up because a postal worker is, is narr- is annotating the margins, which I, I thought was the funniest thing I've seen on Twitter in, um, in a long time. So if there's anything interesting in this Steiger book, I'll do a little mini episode about the, the Steiger book, probably on our reader feedback thing next week when I actually have it in my hands. So if you're wondering why I'm not sharing more from the Steiger book, that's why. So anyway, this is where the Carlos Allende narrative goes next. Carlos, the real Carlos, will assume for the sake of argument, goes to APRO headquarters, the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization. And I think that was in Arizona at the time. And he goes to uh, Jim and Coral Lorenzen's house and he hands them, uh, he tells them he's sick of all the publicity about the story. He's sick of people, every that everybody was profiting from his story but him. And this is 1969. He wants to get back at them all. He gives Jim Lorenzen a copy of the Vero edition of the case for the UFO and a typed out confession, which is published in an article in the uh, APRO bulletin in 1969, the July, August um, edition. And this is what the confession said. All words, phrases, and sentences underlined on the following pages in brown ink are false. The below page and the top part of the following were and are the craziest pack of lies I ever wrote. My object? To encourage ONR research and discourage Professor Morris K. Jessup from going further with investigations possibly leading to actual research. Then I feared invisibility and force field research. I don't now. Signed, Carl M. Allen. In fact, from the article in the APRO Bulletin, what we learn from... Allende and his conversation with Jim Lawrenson of APRO is that he wanted to do more than discourage Jessup's research. He wanted to, quote, scare the hell out of Jessup. So there we were. 1969, we have a confession of the thing being a hoax. But at the same time, you have Allende still kind of pushing the narrative that there is something to the, let's put this in kind of sarcasm quotes, science of what he was talking about in his letters to Jessup and in the annotations to Case for the UFO. Then, as we get into the 1970s, what occurs, according to articles written by David Halperin on his blog about the collection of correspondence between Barker and Allende in the Gray Barker Collection in West Virginia, and documents at johnkeel.com, which hosts a lot of John Keel's correspondence, which makes sense given the domain name. What we see is that despite wanting to sort of declare the hoax and drop out and and ruin things for people who are profiting from his work, Allende sort of goes into this correspondence overdrive that lasts into the 1980s in some cases. And he corresponds and writes letters, long letters, rambling letters to Gray Barker and 
John Keel. And it's it's a lot to get into. I was I was going to go into some of these letters, especially the ones with Keel, but Allende's writing style, as you heard on the last episode, is not pleasant to study or read. It's it's paranoid. It's strange. It's difficult. Uh, the correspondence that is available between he and Keel is basically Keel being skeptical that the Allende writing to him is the actual real Carlos Allende, and then numerous letters from Allende trying to prove that he is. The correspondence with um, with Barker is not in that way because he did, you know, visit with with Barker on occasion and recorded an audio tape with Barker about his ideas, during which time, um, I learned from reading David Halperin's summary of these things, Barker and co-interviewer Jim Mosley were outrageously drunk during the entire thing. As far as I know, there is not a copy of this tape online for uh, easy access. It would be nice if it was. I think it would be very interesting. But if you want to hear that tape, I presume you have to go to West Virginia to do so. From Halpern's account, what becomes clear is that Ayende would write these long, rambling letters to Barker, and Barker would reply with very brief, sort of dismissive letters. But Ayende kept writing, and he would keep writing for a couple years after Barker's death, even, probably wondering why he wasn't getting even those brief, dismissive responses. Then, in 1979, a book came out called The Philadelphia Experiment, Project Invisibility, by Charles Berlitz and William L. Moore. Now, this is the book that, for the general public, put the Philadelphia experiment on the map, as much as the Philadelphia experiment has ever been on the map for the general public. Sometimes I think those of us who are interested in these topics assume there's wider knowledge of these things than there actually is. If you were to go up to any random dozen people on the street, which I do not recommend, and ask them to tell you what they know about the Philadelphia experiment, you would get, I think, probably eight to nine blank looks one person who tells you about the Philadelphia experiment and two people who probably hit you or something because they know the real secrets and are trying to shut you up. So the Philadelphia experiment book is pretty interesting and we're not going to go through it extensively because to be honest, a lot of it covers things that we covered last time You know, of necessity. There is a whole lot about the Jessup Vero edition thing. The most interesting part of the book for me, and hence the part that you will hear about because this is my show, is the more Burlitz investigation into who Carlos Allende is. That's one thing that's interesting. And the other thing are some things that they talk about and investigate that will become significant in later iterations of the Philadelphia experiment mythos and its various offshoots. So looking at their investigation, their their discussion of Carlos Allende, let's look first at Moore and Berlitz's summary of what they learned from Allende from the commentary on the Jessup material. It's a nice little summary of really what we know so far. 
Allende himself claims to have observed at least portions of this experiment while at sea on board the Liberty ship SS Andrew Furuseth, a Matten Lines ship out of Norfolk. This was sometime in October 1943. According to Allende, other men who were on the deck at the time and witnessed the tests were Chief Mate Mosley, Richard Splicey Price, an 18 or 19-year-old sailor from Roanoke, Virginia, a man named Connolly from New England, possibly Boston. So more in Berlitz, probably mostly more. Berlitz was there to sort of polish Moore's research and writing and add his significant name credibility to it. I believe that's the impression I've gotten. If I'm wrong, somebody set me straight. Let's just say more because he's the one who does a lot of the footwork decides that the best thing to do would be to track down Carlos Allende and actually talk to him. And he's able to do this eventually um, through talking to Jim Lawrenson of APRO and, and other people who've had correspondence and, and trying to figure out where Carlos is. But even after finding him and talking to him, Moore, Moore says this, he says, although maintaining contact with the man who calls himself Carlos Allende has produced voluminous correspondence, several lengthy telephone conversations, and a couple of face-to-face -face meetings, it is still virtually impossible to say very much about him with any degree of certainty. He goes on to talk about Carlos in this way. Allende is about six feet tall, balding, spare of frame, and usually somewhat shabbily dressed. His eyes often show suspicion, but he occasionally smiles gently. He is given to rambling monologues about his thoughts on many topics besides the Philadelphia experiment. When he does talk about the Philadelphia experiment, he often appears to be keeping something back or avoiding a direct answer. When pressed for information, he will change the subject. He will make appointments, then not show up, or will appear unannounced. What Moore is able to get from Allende is a summary of his life and his background that hopefully, everybody thinks, will kind of explain some of the strange things in his, in his writings, in his annotations, in his letters. For example, the gypsy comments, the, the mentions of being a gypsy. Where does that come from? Well, Carlos explains to Moore his family background. The first of these, based on information mostly from Carlos Allende himself, has it that he was born Carl Allen, the youngest of three children of an Irish father and a gypsy mother, on May 31, 1925, on a farm outside of a small Pennsylvania town, not New Kensington. Of his early life, not much is known, save that the family lived on a small farm and that young Carlos, or Carl, quit school in his ninth year. We are told he was a moody and rather restless youngster who liked to lose himself in books. New Kensington, Pennsylvania is a reference to a return address that had been used on some letters from Carl slash Carlos. When he was 17, Carl left the life of farm work in Pennsylvania and joined the Marine Corps. He served 10 months. He was discharged in 1943 because of medical disability. He visited home in Pennsylvania, then goes to Philadelphia and enlisted in the Merchant Marine in July of 1943. A few days later, he did his training, and he was on a number of ships, initially the SS Andrew Furuseth, the Liberty ship from which he supposedly saw this Philadelphia experiment take place. He was on, he said, 27 different ships um, until October 1952, when a union dispute seemed to be denying him further assignments. He leaves, searches for his fortune elsewhere. 
He bounces around from job to job, doing a lot of oil well work in the 1950s in Texas, which matches up, more discovered, with the return addresses he used at that time when he was mailing letters to Jessup and that copy, the annotated copy of the case for the UFO, to the Office of Naval Research. But once things get rolling with that, he begins to get a little nervous, according to Moore. A drifter, he nonetheless apparently became worried when the Navy and others began taking an interest in him, following his contacts with Dr. Jessup, and he went into hiding for a number of years. He finally ended up in the Los Altos region of south-central Mexico, and eventually he came to consider the region his home. He had been to the area before during the course of his wanderings and claims that, in fact, it was the gypsies of this region who Mexicanized Carl Allen into Carlos Miguel Allende. At the time of this writing, he is still living there. So that's the origin of the Carl Allen Carlos Allende name, apparently. Except maybe it isn't. Moore goes on for a few pages, okay, Moore and Berlitz, I should say, go on for a few pages about an Allende family they discovered living in Pennsylvania that might, with a few name changes and some other shenanigans here and there, match up with the Carlos Allende, Carl Allen story. As we're going to see, that's not the case. And since we're going to see it's not the case, I'm just going to say if you read the Philadelphia Experiment, some of the stuff Moore says is contradicted by people with more knowledge a few years later. Um, Like I said, you got to make choices about what to talk about and what not to talk about. So regardless of where he was born, where he was from, is he really a gypsy? Is he not? The real question, according to Moore, is whether or not Allende is in any position to know anything about this actual Philadelphia experiment. The truth is that Allende was not a scientist, nor even a trained observer, but merely a deckhand who happened to be in the right, or wrong, place at the proper time to view a site which he was, and still is, totally at a loss to explain. Did he see a ship vanish? According to his own testimony, he did. How was it done? He doesn't know exactly, but it has to do with force fields of some sort. There is plenty of static electricity associated with it, he said. Could he name the ship? Yes, he could. It was the D-East-173. Did he see it vanish more than once? No, he didn't. But it did, he adds knowingly. Where did he obtain his information on Einstein, Russell, and Admiral Bennett? From friends in high places who shall go nameless. So this is where we get the designation of the ship being DE-173, which corresponds to the USS Eldridge, which is always the ship that's associated with the Philadelphia experiment. That designation doesn't show up until here with these conversations between Moore and Allende. Why not? Why didn't he mention the name of the ship that disappeared and appeared in Norfolk, Virginia? Why doesn't he talk about that? That's a good question. And it's one that Moore doesn't really follow up on. We also, in the Moore Berlitz book, get a description of the experiment himself from Allende, and it appears from this description he was closer to the action than he kind of might have intimated earlier. So you want to know about Einstein's great experiment, eh? Do you know I actually shoved my hand up to the elbow into this unique force field as that field glowed, surging powerfully in a counterclockwise direction around the little experimental navy ship, the DE-173. I felt the push of that force field against the solidness of my arm and hand outstretched into its humming, pushing, propelling flow. 
I watched the air all around the ship turn slightly, ever so slightly darker than all the other air. I saw, after a few minutes, a foggy green mist arise like a thin cloud. I think this must have been a mist of atomic particles. I watched as thereafter the DE-173 became rapidly invisible to human eyes, and yet the precise shape of the keel and underhull of that ship remained impressed into the ocean water as it and my own ship sped along aside, somewhat side by side and close to inboard. Yes, I can tell it, but then, who cares? In trying to describe the sounds that the force field made as it circled around the DE-173, it began as a humming sound, quickly built up to a humming, whispering sound, and then increased to a strongly sizzling buzz like a rushing torrent. The field had a sheet of pure electricity around it as it flowed. This flow was strong enough to almost knock me completely off balance, and had my entire body been within that field, the flow would have a most absolute certainty have knocked me flat on my own ship's deck. As it was, my entire body was not within that force field when it reached maximum strength density. Repeat, density. And so I was not knocked down, but my arm and hand was only pushed backward with the field's flow. Why was I not electrocuted the instant my bare hand touched that sheet of electricity surrounding the flow? It must have been because I was wearing high-hip rubber sailor's boots and a southwester coat. Elemental Atomic Forces of Nature. Resistible if you're wearing galoshes and a decent coat. From there, Moore and Berlitz delve back into the Jessup suicide from back in the late 1950s, and Moore says that he has a breakthrough in this account in the form of a witness, a man named Dr. J. Manson Valentine, an oceanographer, zoologist, archaeologist, and longtime student of the Bermuda Triangle. So this is probably a connection through Charles Berlitz. And Valentine gives... Moore and Berlitz the rundown of what really might have happened to not a doctor, M.K. Jessup. Why did Jessup kill himself? Valentine's answer was unexpected and startling. If he committed suicide, said Valentine, it was probably due to extreme depression. He had been approached by the Navy to continue working on the Philadelphia experiment or similar projects, but had declined. He was worried about its dangerous ramifications. Perhaps he could have been saved. He was still alive when he was found. Perhaps he was allowed to die. Valentine stated that Jessup had researched the question of the Philadelphia experiment pretty thoroughly. You must remember, he observed, that he was not a crank writer, but a distinguished and famous scientist. No, he wasn't. I'm sorry. No, he wasn't. And this is something that that we know. This is something that if Moore and Berlitz had talked to Gray Barker, they would have seen the letter sent from the University of Michigan that we talked about last time that that verified and sort of clarified what Jessup's credentials were. He was not a distinguished and admired scientist. He was a guy who wrote some UFO books after having some astronomical training. That's what he was. And this sort of thing just persists. And what evidence is there that the Navy was wanting Jessup to work on the Philadelphia experiment? What, what evidence is that? A guy said so. A guy who, who knew Jessup. A guy who knew he was talking to two people who were writing a book about the Philadelphia experiment. You get the impression from Allende, from Valentine here, you get the impression from a lot of these folks that when you start to look into this topic, and let's face it, almost every other topic in this field, you run into a lot of people who want to tell a lot of unsubstantiated stories. And then you have other people who put these unsubstantiated stories into a book. 
And as we're going to see, you have people who take these unsubstantiated stories that they read in books and assume that because it's in a book, it must be a real story and a real thing that happened. That Valentine thing irritated me, as you can probably tell. This, this isn't snark. This is, this is pure irritation. Moore and Berlitz continue their investigation and, and find that the Office of Naval Research has issued a statement saying that nothing of this is real. The Vero edition stuff was, was basically the personal interest of two officers and not an official ONR operation or request. They have never undertaken any experiments in invisibility. Maybe it's being confused with degaussing experiments to demagnetize ships to make them, in quotes, invisible to magnetic minds. But real invisibility is sort of the realm of science fiction, they say. More goes on, continues his investigations, finds that the log books of the Furuseth and the Eldridge are unavailable. The Furuseth has been destroyed by executive um, executive order. Uh, the Eldridge's is missing for the dates that might have encompassed the Philadelphia experiment from October, or sorry, from August to December of 1943, which is suspicious, but just because there might have been something going on with a ship that made the Navy feel a need to make the logs unavailable, that's not evidence of an invisibility experiment with force fields and Einstein being involved and all of this kind of thing. The Philadelphia Experiment book goes on for a while, and while it's a, a sort of breezy, readable book, it, it does get kind of bogged down in details here and there. So there are some other things in the book that I just want to mention because I think they're kind of interesting. One of the interesting things that's going to lead into some other topics later on down the road is that Moore becomes acquainted with some scientists who were the models for scientists in a fictionalized version of some of these ideas, a novel called Thin Air. That's another book that I'm waiting on the mail for, so I might do something with that later on. But he becomes acquainted with some people who tell him about some scientists who were working on some things that were not entirely dissimilar to some of the things that Allende was talking about. And one of these scientists was named John von Neumann, who I believe was uh, from Hungary, originally comes to the United States, is an early pioneer in a lot of things, including computers and things like that. The name von Neumann will return later on. And the pseudonym of the scientist he is talking to about Dr. von Neumann and things is a Dr. Reinhardt. And on our next installment of the show, where we hopefully wrap up this story, Reinhardt and von Neumann will make appearances. One last thing about the Philadelphia experiment. Near the end, Moore and Berlitz connect what's going on in the Philadelphia experiment to UFO sightings and UFO conspiracies and what might be covered up about UFOs and how what was done in Philadelphia might have attracted alien attention. And to bolster this discussion, they bring in an expert. 
Professor Stan Friedman, a nuclear physicist of Hayward, California, has speculated that the reason the alien intelligences may have been attracted to the Philadelphia experiment might be because of large concentrations of electromagnetic oversplash produced by the experiment itself. Professor Friedman, who has personally investigated a number of other cases in which UFOs had reportedly appeared in an uninvited response to electromagnetic experimentation, theorizes that if aliens are observing our world, they would likely to have a functional electromagnetic map, and when bright spots or points appeared, not accounted for on their grid, they would naturally investigate its source. And honestly, that's all I've got to say about the Moore and Berlitz book. It's it's a good overview of the story up until 1979. There are things that happen after 1979 that cast doubt on some of what they were able to come up with. And at the same time, the story will continue to expand. And that's something we're going to look at after the break. We'll be back in a week fielding your questions and comments about this episode, so get those to us in the comments under this episode on the website, on social media, through email, whatever you have. On the next episode, oh, and we'll be um, taking a look briefly at the, um, the Brad Steiger book about the Allende letters, if the post office gets it to me. On the next regular episode, we've got a guy named Al, a guy named Preston, I think think there is a guy named Peter somewhere in there, maybe talking about a guy named Stuart, and we're going to be talking about a place called Montauk. Over on the Chizo Media Patreon page, we've got some fun stuff up there and some fun stuff planned for April. There's going to be a, uh, a Saucer Life bonus episode about... Um, about some books you should read and one you absolutely shouldn't. And I don't know which one is which yet. So that will, uh, that will be fun. People really seem to enjoy the bonus episode we had last month about uh, the, the Art Bell episode with the John Lear test. Uh, particularly poignant now that John Lear is no longer with us. Um, there's content. Uh, there's there's going to be something special I'm doing in April that I haven't done before. It's going to be a little experiment in watching something very, very strange that a, uh, a listener put me in the loop on. Um, there's stuff um, relating to our sister program, Great Lakes Lore. A lot of stuff up on the Patreon. Thank you so much for those who've supported us so far. You can always check out past episodes of the show in your, your podcast app or at saucerlife.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife, and you can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can contact us by post at Chizo Media, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blank, Michigan, 48480. And now, back to the program. So the next thing that happens in the saga of Carlos Allende is an article in the October 1980 issue of Fate magazine by Robert Gorman, and he has very kindly um, placed this letter or this article that he wrote on a website for everybody to enjoy without tracking down the October 1980 issue of Fate magazine. He goes through the 
saga, the story, I keep saying saga, the story of Jessup and Allende and the letters and the annotated edition of Case for the o- Case for the ONR, Case for the UFO that was sent to the ONR and Jessup's 1959 suicide. And then Gorman looks at this notion of the return address on the envelope of the book that was sent to the ONR. And one of the ONR people acting on their own tried to go to Pennsylvania to find the RD number one box 223 address in Nude Kensington, Pennsylvania. What Gorman tells us, and this is one of those coincidences that is absolutely wonderful, and without it, we wouldn't know nearly as much as what we know. What Gorman reveals is that New Kensington, Pennsylvania, site of the vacant farmhouse that was um, supposedly where this thing was sent from, is his hometown. So in 1968, he decides to look into the matter. He finds Allende's new address in New Mexico from a family friend, but didn't get around to doing anything about it because the UFO field sort of blew up with the Condon report. And then Allende did his confession to APRO, and he kind of lost interest. But then the Philadelphia Experiment book comes out, and Gorman gets contacted from somebody who wants him to look into it. So Gorman and his family are back in New Kensington visiting family, and his daughter goes down to visit a guy named Harold, a nice little guy named Harold and his wife. She's playing with their cats and stuff. Gorman has known Harold for years. He's in his 70s. And they start talking, and Gorman mentions to Harold that he's found, he's looking at the story of this guy Allende, and he's found this guy's brothers, and he's really on the right track. And then Harold says, oh yeah, I'm Carl's father. Harold Allen is Carl Allen's father. It's one of these amazing things, right? So Gorman you know, runs into Carlos Allende slash Carl Allen's father, who gives him a bunch of envelopes and books and papers says Carl sends us this stuff every so often if you can use any of it Um, including one of the things in there is a copy of the Vero edition autographed love your son Carl M. Allen and then in parentheses Carlos Allende and there's a letter inside it and the letter inside it says that basically he wrote the book alongside Morris K. Jessup, and this is the copy he got for being a co-author, which is not anything like what he had said before and isn't anything that's actually true in a strict sense. Talking to members of the family, looking at documentation, Gorman is able to come up with who Carlos Allende really was, his actual background. Gorman says, don't look at any of the sensational books for the answer. You'll never find it there because Carlos loves to play games with those foolish enough to play audience. The prosaic truth, as his family revealed it to me, is as follows. So he was born Carl Meredith Allen on May 31st, 1925 in a house in Springdale, Pennsylvania. He's the oldest of five children. His father was of English descent. His mother was part French. Neither parent has any gypsy blood, regardless of what Carl claimed. He was brilliant in school, but as his brother Randolph explained, he never really used it, never worked anywhere long enough to collect severance pay. He's a drifter. He reads continually, but the information gets all twisted somehow. He was really good 
it seems, at picking up information from school without doing any of the actual work. He just absorbed information like a sponge, spoke many languages fluently, some kind of savant almost, just absorbing information but not doing anything practical with it. He was a master leg puller, one brother described. One time in 1956, he faked a heart attack so well that the doctors ran three EKGs just to make sure he wasn't having a real heart attack. His brother discovered all kinds of medical textbooks with the chapter on coronaries and heart attacks being annotated. He annotated everything, not just the Vero edition. He annotated everything. He annotated the Christmas cards he would send his family. He would underline things and write things on the edges of the cards, almost like a compulsion. He says, well, his brother Randolph says, I have children who have never met their uncle Carl. They never will either. He scares my wife. He's an outcast, his brothers say, by his own choice, who has nothing to show for himself but his marvelous tale of a disappearing ship and a legendary book he claims to have co-authored. The supposedly vacant farmhouse that the ONR man visited was never vacant. His brothers are confused by what vacant house this person might have seen because there were no vacant houses nearby, not within five miles or so. Which, Gorman says, brings us to the Philadelphia experiment. Did he know anything about it at all? He asked Carl's brother, and Carl's brother said, you'll never nail Carl on this. Between changing the subject and changing his story whenever anyone gets close, well, I wish you luck. And that tallies exactly with what Moore said in the Philadelphia Experiment book about how cagey and evasive Carl slash Carlos Allen slash Allende could be. Gorman closes his article with a rundown of some of the inconsistencies and confusion that Allen tried to create when discussing the Philadelphia experiment, particularly about the ships that were involved. In Morin Berlitz's book, he states, it was the DE-173. In his August 2nd, 1979 letter to me, Carl Allen writes in Postscript, there were two, and presently are two, DE-173s, two ships also capable of becoming visible. And finally, in the annotated version of the Moore Burlitz book that Carl sent home to his parents on Christmas 1979, he wrote, So as two ships, DE-173 and DE-168, or some such ID number, were both patrolling our sector of the convoy, I had a choice. Logic informed me that it was logically the DE-173. I was wrong, and it is a good thing I was wrong, because the real actual experimental ship's logbook, chock full of records, remains probably undestroyed and available. That explains a lot. He's a strange, brilliant, eccentric. He's also a little touchy. He sends Gorman a letter in September of 1981. Here are just a few excerpts. Quote, I hate ufologists with a fierce, angry, begrudging purple passion. I'd prefer to see them all, your wordy self included, as dead as dodos, have no respect at all, none whatsoever for non-scientists, and less for the goofy weirdos calling themselves ufologists who know worlds less science. Ufologists are like skid row bums. They think the world owes them a free ride at others' expense, and that, like the stupid bums, a free living is owed you, also obtained at somebody else's expense. Um, I don't actually know if I disagree with 
all of that. Um, he also goes on to say near the end, Mr. I'll tell you something and you will be extremely wise to remember it. I am coming home to see my dad and all my other relatives thereabouts. And if you so little as stick your empty, stupid head within 200 feet of wherever I shall be residing, I will be too delightedly happy and in fact, exultantly overjoyed to blow it off with my 12 gauge shotgun. And moreover, if you so much as call me on the telephone, I will come after you with that same 12-gauge shotgun and teach you some good manners. This is because you have shown nothing except very bad manners all along to me. And this letter is like almost everything I've ever seen that Carlos Allende has sent to people, has um, some annotations, some underlining, some use of words that don't actually make sense. So it seems that Gorman's letter or article has solved a lot of questions and answered a lot of questions about Carl Allen's or Carlos Allende's background. This article generated a letter to Gorman from John Keel, who had, as I mentioned before, corresponded quite a bit with Allende back in the uh, back in the 1970s, and Keel has some ideas about what might be going on as well. He begins with some general thoughts about the Vero document and Morris K. Jessup. First, Morris K. Jessup personally regarded the Vero document as a joke. He openly scoffed at it. Shortly before his suicide, Jessup wrote a long, rambling letter to Long John Nebel, and similar letters to a few others, including Hans Stefan Santison, editor of a science fiction magazine. These were typical pre-suicide letters of a depressive personality. While there are some odd things about the way authorities in Florida behaved in handling his death, there's absolutely no doubt that Jessup ended his own life because of career setbacks and family problems. Just before he killed himself, he turned over his correspondence with Allende and his personal copy of the Vero document to Mr. Santison. He had made many notations of his own in the margins of the Vero book, all of them questioning the validity of A and S's comments and generally ridiculing their efforts. He felt the whole thing was a waste of time and money, and that Allende was a mental case. Keel explains that he got in touch with Allende because while he thought that the margin notes and the writing indicated, quote, the work of a schizophrenic, a dual personality, Keel was also intrigued by the accuracy about some of the comments about magnetism and other topics like the force fields that weren't really being talked about much in ufology, sort of reminding Gorman that in 1966, ufology had been pretty much paralyzed in this this kind of, um, you know, Air Force cover-up, NICAP, nuts and bolts, flying saucer kind of things. Keel also has some thoughts about the Vera document's origins and who might really be at fault for publicizing everything a little bit too much. But here's the very important point that you and all the others have mangled for years. Vero was behind the hoax, not Allende or anybody else. Jessup, Sanderson, Santison, myself, and everyone else knew that Allende had written the annotations. Allende admitted on many occasions to many people. One set of notations was written in his handwriting. The other set was probably written with his other hand and thus disguised. The introduction of the Vero document tried to make a bigger mystery out of the whole thing. The Vero secretary who typed the thing up as the perpetrator of the real hoax. Keel has some sympathy for Allende. He says, quote, I'm sure that his letters to Jessup were sincere and that when he annotated Jessup's book and mailed it to the naval office, he thought he was offering some valid information. He never expected it to snowball into a celebrated cause. 
Jessup suggested that the Navy throw the book into a waste paper basket. Instead, they passed it on to the nest of UFO believers at Vero. Later, Allende presented himself at Vero and was giving copies of the book. He told them he had written all the annotations. So Keel is really pinning a lot of this on people at Vero. And I wish I had more information about those people at Vero who might have wanted to do this. It's still a very, very fuzzy sort of narrative. Like, Several of you, you know, sent me messages about after our Morris K. Jessup episode, the whole question of why the ONR and Vero went to the trouble of doing all this is still, I think, very much an open question. Keel also has what I think is a really, really good and interesting, maybe not necessarily true, but good and interesting speculation on how Allende might have put things together in his head to come up with the ideas he did about the Philadelphia experiment. While researching my book on the atomic bomb and the nuclear mess, I discovered that the Manhattan Project took over part of the Philadelphia Navy Yard in the 1940s, and that one ship was loaded with atomic lab gear, including cloud chambers, heavy magnetic units, degaussing coils, etc. Civilians in the area at the time must have been mystified by the bearded scientist, most of whom spoke Hungarian accents, who visited the area clutching briefcases. The Manhattan Project security force probably circulated false stories, cover stories about what was going on there. These stories undoubtedly reached Allende's ears, garbled and over-dramatized. During the war years, a magician named Dunninger was very famous. He had a very popular radio show and was a master at publicizing himself. He brashly announced to the press that he had figured out a way to make ships invisible and that he was donating this idea to the war effort. His claim made the front page of all the newspapers, just as he knew it would, and nothing further was heard of his wonderful discovery. However, one man tucked it away in his memory. Years later, this poor, confused, schizoid brain would combine the Dunninger claim with the Manhattan Project's cover stories, and a legend would be born. I don't know. I... I... It, we don't know what, what, what went on in Carl Allen's head. We, we don't know that. We, we can't know that. We can't know his thought processes. But I don't know. It just seems like a very plausible sequence of events that Keel lays out here. Keel then, being John Keel, goes into some detail on the Philadelphia Experiment book and how he was probably ripped off in some way. If you've been around Keel's stuff for a while, you'll notice that there is a there's often a sense of sort of begrudged sort of grievance at the heart of a lot of things. Now let's jump ahead to 1975. I had a series of meetings with Charles Berlitz that year. He told me he was writing a book about Allende, and I told him that the whole thing was a sad, demented affair and that it would be best to leave it alone. But I lent him my Allende file. Then I got a letter from a young school teacher in the Midwest. He said he was researching the Allende business and asked for advice. I wrote to him and told him that he should contact Charles Berlitz. I even sent him Berlitz's home address and private phone number. He was, of course, William Moore, and I never heard from him again. He contacted Berlitz, and together they contrived a book on the Philadelphia Experiment. The book made money. Moore was able to quit his teaching job and become a full-time writer. I literally changed his whole life, yet he has never written to thank me for introducing him to Berlitz, and never contacted me when he passed through New York. We did have one accidental encounter while he was visiting a mutual friend. The material in my Allende file was never mentioned in the Moore Burlitz book, nor was any of the other wealth of negative material to be found in Sanderson's files. True. Not. Who knows? But we do know that 
Keel had a lot of correspondence with Allende. We do know that Keel had talked to Sanderson about a lot of this stuff. And we do know that um, Moore and Berlitz really had no idea about any of this before they started working on the book, as far as I could tell. So maybe plausible, maybe not. Keel closes his letter with some interesting observations that I don't entirely disagree with. Allende was supposedly dying of cancer in 1970, but he is probably still out there somewhere writing long dissociative letters to anyone who mentions his name in print. Gray Barker is still selling reproductions of the Vero book for an unseemly price, and anyone who offers the true facts about the non-existent Philadelphia experiment will be shouted down as a pawn of the Air Force conspiracy. Like 90% of the UFO lore, there was never anything to it. But Carl Allen was not a conscious hoaxer. If anything, he's one of ufology's biggest victims. All the best, John A. Keel. So Allende is roaming around, um, you know, writing letters to Robert Gorman, being very angry, writing letters to Gray Barker that don't get replies because Barker has died. Eventually he moves out west or a different place out west. He was in Mexico. He moves to Colorado, Greeley, Colorado. And in 1985, he was interviewed for a local newspaper in Greeley and said that it was his deathbed statement. The The headline is Mystery Man Author's Deathbed Statement, The Riddle of Carlos Allende Resolved. Carlos Allende, a mystery man and recluse of the 20th century, has been hiding out in Greeley, Colorado. Sought by many, he is the subject of at least 22 books. Most authors conclude by asking his true whereabouts. If only we could find the true Carlos Allende, states one writer, we could ask him our questions. After a very brief summary of the Philadelphia Experiment story, the reporter describes sitting outside on a bench in the park with Carlos in Greeley, California, and relates that Greeley was an 1869 experiment to settle and civilize the West, and it worked, and people moved beyond the Mississippi. And now, the reporter says, Carlos wants America to try another experiment. Philadelphia experiment worked, Carlos said. That was what frightened the military. They didn't know what Einstein was doing. He used them to accomplish his own research and propulsion. He believed we could travel faster than the speed of light. That's what he was doing, and they didn't even know it. Carlos then goes on to tell the reporter about force fields and visible force fields and invisible force fields and the ship and how all of this can be done to provide energy sources and propulsion sources that we can't dream of. Basically, this is the Philadelphia experiment was all about Einstein. And then we get a description of Carlos as he was in 85 as he was being interviewed. Carlos is 61. He wore tweed trousers and a jacket. In his pockets were stuffed a variety of pens and pencils, paper and notes. He was thin. On his wrists, he wore medical bracelets. He had been hospitalized with a racing heart several times during the previous week. It must be fate, he said. This is my deathbed statement. In case I die, the questions will be answered. All but one. That'll die with me. The article concludes with Carlos telling the reporter just what is at stake if we are able to carry out Einstein's experiments that he began using the Philadelphia experiment, which was, Carlos says, just a cover for Einstein's own private investigation into faster-than-light propulsion. 
We can have starships, and we need them for defense. Imagine the mountain space beyond the moon. Russia launches a nuclear attack. The starships could return with laser cannons blasting, repeating laser cannons, capable of incinerating every major city in the USSR. It's reasonable. We could have a fleet of starships unrivaled in the world, starships capable of protecting America from surprise attack. This is so strange. It seems to me to be an attempt by Carlos to sort of wrest the narrative of the Philadelphia experiment back from the Moore and Berlitz book and back from the early 1980s Philadelphia experiment movie that had come out shortly before this deathbed statement. It's not really a deathbed statement. He would live for another nine years. And yes, we will be talking about that movie on our next episode. Carlos Allende, Carl Allen would fade from the scene as new figures, as we'll see next time, arose on the Philadelphia experiment circuit. And Carlos himself would die on March 5th, 1994 at Centennial Healthcare Center in Greeley, Colorado. And that would seem to be the end of the story of Carlos Allende, except for a book that came out in 2016, double-checking, 2012, sorry, by a woman named P.J. Dowers called Hoax, The Philadelphia Experiment Unraveled. And she released this book commercial for it on YouTube. I'm P.J. Dowers, author of Hoax, The Philadelphia Experiment Unraveled. Please just take two minutes to hear about my book and how an old man's tale spurred my son and me to research his story of an invisible ship and its crew. Unlike other accounts, my book gives you facts, verified facts, that uncover a shocking, convoluted hoax using invisibility as a cover-up for a bone-chilling outrage. It's alleged that sailors were melded into parts of the ship, and the survivors put away as insane. But were they? Follow Ray and me as we untangle this fabrication. Follow Ray as he follows Allende and read Ray's startling conclusions. Are disinformants paid to lie? Who faked his own suicide? Who was Allende, really? My book is at the Book Patch, where services are affordable and their expertise, support, and patience are priceless. Order at the Book Patch or pjdowers at aol.com Thank you for watching my video. Thebookpatch.com is a real place and I was able to purchase the book. I was terrified because it was the only place I could find the book. I usually order my books through places that don't look like they came out of the internet um, completely untouched from 2012. And I didn't look into their self-publishing, indie publishing processes and um, and prices and everything, but I can only hope that Ms. Dowers was not charged something like $500 for them to produce that YouTube video for her because it was on their channel. So I got this book and it is, it is a doozy. Oh my goodness. I don't know how I'm going to explain this to you, but listen to the opening lines. Listen to this. Just, just drink this in. Secrets are delicious. 
From the titillating rattle of bones in someone else's closet to the shrieking delight of jerking covers off big government shenanigans, secrets seduce, pulling at us like the hypnotic lure of illicit love. Settle down. Oh my goodness. This is, this is, this, this whole thing is quite a trip. So as we heard in the commercial, this is the story of an old man. That old man is Carlos Allende. How does she learn about Carlos Allende? Her and her son, Ray, how do they learn about him? How do I know all this? My son, Ray, and I knew a man who called himself Carlos Allende. Living at the nursing home where two of my daughters were employed, Carlos became friends with Ray and told him of the experiment he saw out there on the ocean. Yes, they lived in Greeley, Colorado, and her daughters worked at that centennial healthcare place where Carlos eventually died in 1994. Dowers explains that her book is going to be the unvarnished truth of what actually happened. Without the lighting, shadows, vocal innuendos, and sideways knowing gaze of a narrator, here's the gist of how Carlos Allende and Morris Jessup became entwined in each other's lives and in the story known as the Philadelphia Experiment. Then, there's the secret we believe ONR officials tried to hide. By the way, the pronunciation of Allende instead of Allende is intentional. Um, Somewhere in the book, she explains that she doesn't know why these people don't do their research and call him Carlos Allende because, or Allende, because she talked to him and he always pronounced it Allende, which is not true. I did hear one clip of Carlos and he introduces himself very specifically as Carlos Allende. So, He's putting on a show for her as well. And it's quite a show. She describes the first time she met him. Ray's mother, Carlos breathed wonderingly. He didn't grasp my hand, but held it gently while his eyes moved tenderly over my face. I'm so pleased to meet you. The old gentleman's voice was a bit gravelly, but low-pitched, cultivated, warm. His charisma was almost tangible. He exuded a gentle, irresistible intensity. I returned his gaze, speechless. Thank you, I managed finally, remembering to smile. The moment lengthened. Growing uncomfortable, I wanted to withdraw my hand, but I didn't want to offend him. What in the name of hell is going on here is what I wrote in the margin of this book because are is this some sort of weird Carlos Allende creepy fanfic. This is strange. She seems a little smitten with the guy. And that's a a thread that continues throughout the book. And as the book goes on, we hear Carlos's interpretation or his telling of the Philadelphia experiment. It's very much like what we get in that deathbed, uh, deathbed confession from 1985. He studied with Einstein. He was just this guy who was going around, but he's going around in the merchant marine, but he's brilliant. And Einstein was on his ship. And during one of these encounters on the ship while they were doing things, he saw a UFO, the big sort of, sort of mothership or arc that the LMs and SMs talked about in the annotated edition of uh, the case for the UFO. I was on the melee in the Atlantic. It was a coastwise assignment. That object went across the Gulf of Alaska and was next seen over Juneau. It went across Canada and down to Chicago, where it made an intelligently controlled maneuver. It turned south toward Indianapolis, then it turned again and headed out to sea. It came right out over us and made two more intelligently controlled maneuvers. A slight right-hand turn, then a big left turn. 
Daris' son, Ray, asked about the people who were on this ship. What kind of people were they? Yeah, nice folks, too. When the big ship exploded, those little ships took a lot of force, pushing some of them out into the sea. A lot of those people were killed, but about a hundred or fifty so of the smaller craft got away. The explosion slammed one of them into our ship's anchor. It was just a one-man craft, but he was taking his sweetheart with him on his lap. Her chest was crushed in the crash, and she died the next day. Yeah, she died. This is all so weird. You, you cannot imagine just the way my jaw just kept dropping open when I was reading this book because he's busting out the story of, oh yeah, they were leaving the mothership and he's in a little ship, and but he had his girlfriend on his lap and they crashed. It was, it was a bad scene, man. It's just so strange. Oh, and here's another tender moment between the author and uh, Carlos. Carlos stood up too. I extended my hand. He ignored my gesture to shake and gently took my hand in his, held it a moment, then kissed it. I was floored. My face felt hot, but surely I couldn't be blushing. I was 55 years old. Those sweet, tender moments would actually be kind of sweet if I didn't have the impression from all the stuff that I've read that Carlos was kind of a skeezy con man in a lot of ways. So in the promotional video for her book, you heard Ms. Dowers describe her book, used the word, I think she used the word convoluted to explain some of the things she learned. And that is an amazingly accurate way to put not just the things she thinks she and her son uncovered, but the way the book is written. There's a lot of things relayed through dialogue that sort of recreate conversations that might not have happened the way they actually happened because you can't always accurately recreate dialogue and and you sort of shape it and it, it, it's it's very creative but I'm gonna go through and try to explain some of the theories and ideas and solutions Dowers thinks she and her son arrived at logically probably the biggest thing in this book as far as what the word hoax refers to in the title is what actually happened to Morris K. Jessup. Here is a scene where Ms. Dowers is talking to Carlos about Morris Jessup. You know something, about a year or so after he was supposed to have died, he and I talked all night long. Well, I was going to ask if you ever met him. Oh, I met him all right. Then it dawned on me what Carlos had just said. What do you mean after he was supposed to have died? Well, what happened was he got the guy that was sent to get him, and then he took that man's name. We talked all that night and most of the next week. Did either of you have any idea who was after Jessup? What was his name? I just wondered what name Jessup took after the fake suicide. He said it was a professional assassin, the guy that was after him. I've had a guy knocking on my door with a 38 pistol in his hand, and it was, oh my goodness, 27 degrees below zero, and he froze out. You didn't answer the door? Oh, I was across the street behind him sitting on a wall, and he didn't know I was anywhere near. I had a government guard at the time. If that doesn't make any sense, don't worry. It's not you. So basically, what's coming out here is that Carlos is claiming that Jessup didn't commit suicide. He was, in fact, he, in fact, faked his suicide. Not, his suicide was fake, but not because he was murdered. It was faked because he killed the assassin sent to kill him. Then he took that assassin's identity. 
it gets stranger from there, believe me. So how did Jessup, this mild-mannered astronomer slash car parts salesman slash UFO author, you know, defeat a professional assassin and then steal his identity? Well, he had help. One of our government agencies, and I can't say which one, helped him trap the guy. They'd planned for that day a long time because there were communist agents tailing Jessup. You see, he knew a whole lot about scientific things, like radar and magnetics and that experiment, and they wanted to know what he knew, so they were trying to kidnap him. And after they had found out what all Jessup knew, they would have killed him. So Jessup was under secret protection from an unnamed government agency because communist assassins were trying to kill him because he knew too much about various scientific things, including the Philadelphia experiment. Okay, so that's where we are at this point. Now, Carlos doesn't know. He isn't able to tell them when Jessup actually died. Um, Last he heard, he was in Albuquerque in 1960 or 61, somewhere around there. At this point in Dower's narrative, we get to 1994, March of 94, and Carlos passes away. And she and her son, Ray, continue to investigate this. And they find all of the stuff about him being Carl Allen, social security numbers that don't quite uh, don't quite match up. There's, he's, there's the same name under different social security numbers. It gets very confusing. But somehow, Carl Allen became Carlos Allende or Allende, or Allende. I'm so sick of saying these names and will never say any of them ever again once I'm done with this. But Ms. Dowers has a theory about where the name Carlos Allende might have come from and why that was being used. I think the name Carlos Allende began much earlier than Carl Allen's entry into the service. I think Ray's theory was correct, that the Navy, or possibly the OSS, used the name for several personages to keep the Russians confused, and that these Carlos Allendes were kept track of by using various middle names, but all having the same social security number. It is possible the communists got wise to that ploy and also created one or more Carlos Allendes in an attempt to rout out the real or original U.S. Carlos Allende. So Carlos Allende is a cover name used by government agencies. There have been many Carlos Allendes in order to confuse the communists, but now the communists were trying to, I don't know, flush out the one true Carlos Allende that they want. But why would they want a man named Carlos Allende or Carl Allen? What is going on here? This is so weird and so confusing. And my dear listeners, I love you very much, and I'm trying to make this Dower's narrative as digestible as possible, but I don't know if I'm actually doing that. So, time for the next amazing revelation. The two continue to do their research, and then one night, Ray wakes up his mother. He has an idea. He has a theory about what might really be going on. You awake? I switched on my bedside lamp. Yeah, come on in. I could see the blue cover of Moore's book peeping from his armpit. He was holding a spot open in another book. I just had a brain flash, Ray said. Oh yeah? Like what? Carlos is actually Morris Jessup. Ray dropped his bombshell, then watched me, waiting for the news to sink in. I gaped, stunned. Like Carlos said, he got the guy that was sent to get him, then he took over that guy's identity. Carlos left out that the guy's name was Carlos Allende. Someone helped Jessup relocate with that as his new name, like in the Witness Protection Program. I don't think there's anything I can say about that, I'll just move on to another selection where they expand on this a little bit more and sort of 
poke logical holes in their own argument, but then sort of fill those holes, kind of. Okay, so we figured out that in 1943, Jessup was known as Carlos Allende to keep him from being kidnapped and executed by communists, right? Right. Well, then when Jessup started getting letters from Carlos Allende, why didn't the guys at ONR know those letters were from Jessup himself, the guy they themselves had named Carlos Allende? I stared at Ray. Which would mean, I said slowly, that the Navy probably put Jessup up to the whole thing, the annotating of the book, writing the letters to himself from Carlos Allende, and making a big to-do about it all, even probably having Jessup noise it around about his suicide plans. But why? Why? At this point, why not? I am... There's a part of me that wants to believe their story, that the entire Jessup Allende thing was a complex bluff to cover up some aspect of naval research during the war that has nothing to do with anything that we think the Philadelphia experiment has to do with, but something else that they desperately wanted to keep under wraps, at least for the time being, and then it just kind of gets completely out of hand. Meanwhile, there's a whole bunch of stuff in between these sections I'm giving you that, that this book could have been about half as long is what I'm saying. But we're starting to see signs that they're getting a little paranoid. Um, Ms. Dowers says that she, she doesn't doubt that one, the, once the book is published that, that records that they've looked at that verify their ideas will be changed so nobody will ever know that they were right and, and that she herself will be targeted. And her son Ray seems to be, I don't know, kind of imagining some kind of naval takeover of the United States. He turned the knob, then stopped. Have you noticed the flag lately? Well, yeah, I see one every now and then. Why? I've been noticing the blue where the stars are. It used to be blue-blue, like the blue of the sky overhead. The newer flags I've seen have a navy blue field for the stars. So are we the United States of America? Or are we becoming the United States of the Navy? And do you know about the gold fringe around the edge of the flags? That means the court has no jurisdiction over you because that's admiralty law. I was waiting for that to appear, but it didn't. We're getting to the end of the book, and honestly, to the end of my sanity. She closes things out by laying out exactly what she thinks her book accomplished. Although this volume is not conclusive, it does three things. One, it reports what one man told my son and me. Two, it shares the information received from various sources verifying some facets of the mystery. Three, it shows the lines of logic my son and I used and how, right or wrong, we arrived at our opinions. This book is the truth as much as can be determined by those aspects of that question mark in history. Neither my son nor I had the education or desire to attempt to prove the fact or fiction of invisibility. And that's the thing. This is much more about, about Carlos and Jessup and who Carlos might be than it is about the Philadelphia experiment itself, which is actually kind of refreshing. Here's the thing. I, I, you, you hear about what she's arguing in this book and you want to, you want to laugh at it. You, you want to make fun of it and you, you just, you just can't. And if you try, I'm going to probably hate you because I love this book. Um, I love this mother and son 
who have this mystery weirdo and they're trying to figure him out and they're reading all the books we've read about this during this process. And they're coming at it from a point of view that hasn't been informed by being paranormal goofballs for the last 20 years of their life, like me. And they're, they're coming to conclusions that are maybe absolutely goofy, but I don't know. And deep down, what I see are two people who are probably deeply decent people who made friends with a strange guy who loved to tell stories, who was a leg puller from way back, who faked a heart attack so well they had to do three EKGs, who wrote strange letters to the office of Na- to, to an author and weird books to the Office of Naval Research, who wouldn't answer a question straight or the same way twice, who changed his story numerous times, who enjoyed living on the fringes of society and reveled in the kind of freedom that gave him to slip in and out of people's lives in extraordinarily, let's be honest, irritating ways. And they got drawn up in this. And she thought she was onto something and she wrote a book. And maybe she was onto something. Maybe Morris K. Jessup was Carlos Allende. I don't think that's true. But I think we owe it to P.D. Dowers to not just laugh it off. She died last year, last April. I did some Googling around, and um, P.D. Dowers is Phyllis Neuschwanger. Um, she used a, a pseudonym, um, a, uh, a previous name. She was, uh, it's her maiden name. She was born Phyllis Dowers. Neuschwanger was her, her married name. She died last year at the age of 84. And from everything written in her obituary, she was a wonderful person. Her husband left her. She raised how many children? Looking here, she raised eight children as a single mother from the time the youngest was only a baby. They had very little. She jury-rigged ways to keep the house warm by making her own ductwork out of trash bags and channeling the warmth from a kerosene heater all over the house so everybody would be warm. And the children who wrote the obituary say, it sounds funny and unsafe, but it actually worked. She made the kids' clothes out of hand-me-downs, sheets, or other sources of fabric. She used a treadle sewing machine, not an electric one. Whenever there was a wedding, she would be the one to volunteer to make the corsages, boutonnieres, bouquets. She was a wonderful flower arranger. She was proud of her book, they said. And I don't know. It, I find it very affecting. And I wish I would have met her and I wish I could have talked to her, but you know, you miss those opportunities when you don't know a book exists for a while. And then you're scared to order from the website because it looks shady as heck for a much better and more thoughtful assessment of this book than I was able to give. Um, there's a link to David Halperin's review of it in the show notes for this episode. And I think this is a good place to end. Thanks for listening. Next time, we will finish this up 
with the rest of it. Some show notes are in the show notes, rather some links are in the show notes. And I just want to give a shout out to some of those people. Johnkeel.com has lots of scans of those papers. Robert Gorman's website has that fate article and a link to lots of photographs of documents, houses in Pennsylvania, all kinds of stuff. The Philadelphia Experiment website at de173.com has more information than I will ever be able to absorb. And I bet you won't be able to either. For this episode, I used it for so much material and background and and stuff that didn't even have a way to fit in here. Thanks for listening. Remember to send in your questions and comments, uh, and we'll get to them next week. Our associate producer is Simpson J. Hanover. The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Simpson J. Hanover the Third, rather. The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media LLC. Chizo Media. Our heart is with the people. Until next time. Until next time, keep watching the skies because the skies are watching you. And I knew this one would end up being longer than I thought it would be.